Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of Scientists at Sea, brought to you by Exeter Marine. You might remember back a few episodes when we chatted to Steve Simpson and then Tim Gordon about their work in bioacoustics and coral reefs. Well, this week, Ben was joined by some more members of that research group in a special group interview. So we have Lauren Henley talking about her PhD on the UK live wrasse fishery, Emma Veska discussing her studies on marine anthropogenic noise on coral reefs, and Tim Gordon again with his PhD work on coral reef bioacoustics. So here we go. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming along today. Before we start, can we just go around the room here? We've got, we've got four of us in here today. And just introduce yourselves, take your name, what you're, what you're studying at the moment, um, and what stage you're at. Great, so uh, I'm Lauren Henley. I'm coming to the end of my first year of my PhD, um, working on one of the relatively recent fisheries on the south coast of the UK, um, the live wrasse fishery. So um, there's been a, a boom in using cleaner fish in um, Scottish salmon aquaculture. Um, and so the fishermen on the south coast of the UK have, have realised this and they've started catching the cleaner fish and shipping them up to Scotland to put in the salmon aquaculture systems. And so my job is to look at the sustainability of the, f- the fishery and try and develop its management to make it as sustainable as it can be. Okay, and I'm Emma, Emma Veshka. I'm a Masters by Research student at the Exeter uh, University. Uh, I look more at the impact of motorboat noise um, on coral reef fishes out in French Polynesia, so mine's, um, my research is very much considering the ecological consequences of uh, anthropogenic noise, and especially marine anthropogenic noise. Um, and I'll be moving very soon into a PhD to look at this further, but more of a subset of uh, the fish uh, communities on a coral reef. Uh, I'm Tim Gordon. I am doing a PhD in Exeter and in Australia, um, working on coral reef bioacoustics. Uh, So trying to understand what we can learn about coral reefs by listening to them, by listening to the noises the different animals make, and how we can use that to um, guide and to help our conservation efforts. Brilliant. Um, So start with Lauren, so the the RAS there. So you're talking about so getting RAS into salmon farms to... So, what, so what's, what's the function of the, the RAS within a salmon farm? So they are used to clean lice off of salmon. So li- uh, sea lice are a big problem in salmon aquaculture systems. Um, anyone who's bought salmon will probably know that to try and find some that are sustainably grown in aquaculture, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess one of the, the major problems is salmon lice and so um, previously they've used kind of pharmaceuticals and chemicals to clean the lice off of the salmon um, but they've gone t- more towards like ecologically viable option um, environmentally viable and so yeah they found that that wrasse um, are a natural cleaner fish um, and so they tested this in aquaculture and they found that they were a really effective cleaner and so they don't now have to use pharmaceuticals and chemicals um, that are quite damaging to the environment. Ultimately, you're going to be, over the course of your PhD, just looking at the viability of, of the RAS as a, as a cleaner option. Yeah, yeah. so the, the fishery started in Norway um, in the 1980s and um, kind of really escalated since it began. And then it moved over to Scotland so that the 
salmon aquaculture producers could um, could use them from Scotland, wouldn't have to ship them all the way over from, from Norway. But they found that wrasse in Scotland weren't as abundant, so they couldn't catch as many and so couldn't fill their, their salmon pens. So they had to kind of look elsewhere. And so they're really abundant on the south coast of the UK. So they moved down here um, about 2015. So it's, got, it's very recent. The inshore fisheries conservation authorities on the south coast have now developed management to try and um, reduce any of the potential impacts. And yeah, because they're obviously a cleaner, they're a, they're a mesopredator, so they're um, in the middle of the food web. So they're removing them unsustainably could remove a really key organism. Yeah. Um, so they develop management, so my job is just to um, try and help them develop that management and make it as sustainable as it can be. <laughs> how, how do you develop that stuff? Or is that kind of, you're working on that at the moment and working out how that will work? So the management that's in place at the moment has been developed from the knowledge that we've got on the biology and ecology of the wrasse. So some of the main things that it covers is protecting wrasse during their spawning season so that some of their eggs are able to survive and grow on to become adults. We've got like, some small marine protected areas as well that they're not allowed to, or no-take zones, because we know that wrasse are, they don't move very far around the reef. They've quite, got quite high site fidelity. And so these small protected areas can be quite efficient in protecting them. But what I'm trying to do is trying to develop that further so... All of our knowledge of the biology and ecology of wrasse has come from Norway or Scotland, but it might be different on the south coast. So their spawning seasons might shift because of the warmer temperature or um, they might move a bit further around the reef or the population structure might be a bit different. So that's what I'm trying to find out and trying to make it specific to the south coast. I'll stop grilling you now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn, Anna. Um, okay. So, looking at motorboat noise on um, coral reef fish communities, mm. how does that work? How do you how do you go about doing that? Okay, so um, I spent three and a half months out uh, on the island of Morea in French Polynesia, and out there we we identified a northern reef of the island which actually has motorboat channels that cut through the coral reef. So the reef is actually dredged to maintain this deeper channel in order for tourism boats, fishing boats, whale watching boats, yeah, to constantly use those channels and not have to navigate carefully around the reef. Um, so this kind of gave us a really valuable opportunity to see how these long-term motorboat channels are really kicking out quite a lot of noise, how that impacts the um, surrounding coral reef fish there and the community composition of fish. So I, um, me and another PhD student who also works on um, marine bioacoustics in uh, coral reef fish, we went out and we carried fish surveys and this can be usually, what well, the way we did it, we had a 50 meter transect tape and we'd swim along, I'd have that attached to my kind of waist and that would reel out as I swim and I'd go ahead and I'd well, we'd have to make sure we know the 200 coral reef fish that are out there first. So, you know, there's a lot of studying and revision before you do that. So when you're out in the field, you have your waterproof paper and your pencil and you're tallying all these different species that you see in a 50-meter transect. Harry would actually swim behind me and he'd count more of the um, smaller site-attached species that don't actually move away from their corals, whereas I looked at the more roving uh, mobile species. And then we'd collect massive data sets all around the reef, and we'd look at the difference between the fish communities both close to this motorboat channel and far away from the motorboat channel. 
Cool. And like you, you were saying, you're about to turn this into a PhD. So you've been doing a mm. master's on this. Yeah. Um, is that a year, two years? Um, so it's been about uh, a year and a half working on this. Okay. Uh, so I'm just in the write-up phase now. Fantastic. Yeah. And sort of, so you just described how, how you went and did it. So mm. what have you got any key findings you can share so far? Or? Yeah, so um, as you can imagine, fish, they responded quite differently because obviously different fish who carry out different functions on the reef, so they might have a different diet, so you might have the grazers that you know graze on all the sorry the herbivores that graze on all the algae. You can have the parrotfish that um, ex excavate and uh, scrape on the corals, but you can also have the piscivores who will be hunting and they might be using the soundscape to navigate the reef, because sight's really limited when you're underwater. You have much lower visibility than you do in the air, yet sound can travel about five times faster and a lot. Like, maintains its intensity for further so a lot of coral reef fish may be using the soundscape more than um, actually using visuals in order to identify their prey um, so in that sense because you've got so many different families that will use the soundscape differently they've actually got different hearing uh, capabilities so some might have extremely sensitive hearing some might have extremely tolerant hearing so the parrotfish that are scraping at the corals or excavating that's making a really loud crunching and so they need to protect their ears from that so they won't have very sensitive hearing but then you've got some species that are extremely adapted to um, ext uh, listening to very quiet sounds but also at greater frequencies and they might be very vocal fish so a lot of people people don't realise, but fish are extremely vocal underwater. So just like you hear birdsong when you're underwater on a reef, you might also hear fish grunts and calls and whoops. Um, so from this, because the whole ecosystem and the community of coral reef fish are extremely varied, we actually found that there was a massive difference in the impact of motorboat noise uh, on coral reef fish. So where there was no difference in uh, the number of parrotfish close to these boat channels, which is what we'd expect because they haven't got very sensitive hearing, um, we did find that there was quite a significant drop in the number of vocal damselfish. And damselfish are quite pretty little colourful. They're like the butterflies of, of the coral reef, I think. So they're quite colourful, small, they're very sight-attached. Um, some of them might graze a particular farm that they have of algae. Um, they're very territorial, so they chase off other fishes, but they are also very vocal. So this makes sense if they're, if they're trying to communicate with each other, but also trying to chase off predators. This must, might be a lot harder when there's a lot of motorboat noise there. So there was a significant drop in those uh, families, but also we actually found there was a significant drop in wrasses, which is interesting, Lauren, seeing as you work on wrasses. Wrasses aren't very vocal, but it makes sense that they might be using the soundscape quite a lot to navigate where their prey items are. So they might be listening out for where the f there are fish, where there might be fish eggs um, from parents um, having defensive calls or whatever. So this is really interesting. So it's quite a stark contrast in different species. Yeah. And then has anything been looked into yet into terms of how these different sort of um, communities that are being formed having an impact on, on the reefs? as such, or is that something maybe you'll look at the rest of your PhD? Yeah, so this is, I mean, the findings from this one study uh, that I did in my master's is are really new findings because it's been the first time that anybody's really looked at the impact of noise 
beyond just a single species. So uh, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at um, how the foraging of a single species has been impacted or their ability to avoid predators or their parental behaviour. But this has been the first time that we've actually seen how this is translated to an entire community-wide um, study. So the changes in the community composition on the reef and the, what that then means, um, that's kind of a whole new question. But what I'll be looking at more in particular with my PhD, which I've um, just found out that I've got. Um, so this, the ideas for the PhD has come off the back of this master's. Um, one thing we couldn't survey uh, are the nocturnal fishes that live on the reef. So because of our surveying methods, we kind of, we're above the reef and we're counting all the fish that are up in the water column um, and around the coral heads. But what that means is you kind of miss these nocturnal fishes that are hiding under ledges or within caves that only really start to come out um, after the sun sets and, you know, we're only surveying through the day. So this became like a bit of a mystery and you always get super fascinated in the stuff that you haven't collected data for rather than the massive data set you've actually got in front of you that you need to analyse. Um, so, and then, you know, you think, well, why will motorboat noise, which happens throughout the day, be actually impacting these fish? They're only active at the night. But this is uh, just as in humans when, if you live in a household that's quite close to a busy road or a motorway, that's been found to have like some severe impacts on your sleep quality, but also it's been found to raise your blood pressure. I think it's even been led to an increased risk of having a stroke. So there's some really severe physiological impacts um, of sleeping next to a busy road. But if you think about it, all that sound has got to travel from a road through a building before it can get to you. But out on the reef with these motorboat channels, and as I said, sound travels faster and further underwater, these fish are trying to sleep with like pretty much traffic going right directly overhead. So it's extremely loud and also these fish are extremely sensitive to noise. So this has like opened up such massive question for me so that's why I really want to look at how these nocturnal fishes are being able to forage at night. Have they got reduced activity levels? Are they being woken up? Are they being disturbed? So yeah, loads of questions that I want to delve into. Great. Sounds really interesting. So that's a good two or three years coming up. Yeah. Got there. I mean, maybe three PhDs worth, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll certainly give it a crack. Yeah. Have you got any idea how you go about doing that at night? You were saying sort of you surveys at the moment. They were e easy to do in the daytime. Oh, yeah. But uh, nighttime, I imagine, it's a very different... Oh, exactly. That's Yeah, no, I've not quite managed to evolve a way of having night vision yet. But um, there is some really exciting things happening with camera technology. So um, I was having discussions with um, one of the Blue Planet 2 cameraman, Dr Alex Vale, who actually grew up on Lizard Island, which would be the proposed field site for this PhD. Um, he filmed that um, the Percy the Tuskfish out on the a reef out there. But he, yeah, so because he's been working with the Natural History Unit at the BBC, he enlightened me on the use of infrared cameras. So there was a terrifying sequence of a bobbit worm hunting at night, and that was filmed entirely in the dark, but using infrared uh, camera technology. But what's really exciting is, obviously, Blue Planet 2, they have some pretty spectacular cameras, which I can imagine are very expensive. But you can actually remove the infrared filters of any GoPro or GoPro knockoff 
and you can just pair it with an infrared light, which means that you could start filming nocturnal behaviours without the use of any visible light, which, as you can imagine, if you're trying to film natural behaviours, is going to have a massive influence. So to eliminate all of that, um, we can start implementing these. So this is a new kind of method that can be employed, which nobody's really used before. And hopefully I can kind of rig up the reef with some infrared cameras. But also, um, yeah, there's a way of... We, we do quite a lot of, uh, so Tim's work especially, looks quite a lot at the acoustic soundscape, um, how soundscapes can change over coral reef bleaching and reef degradation. So we are very used to now collecting kind of long-term soundscape recordings, and it's been suggested that you can actually survey the reef by the sounds that you get in those recordings. So a lot of nocturnal fish are actually very vocal, so there might be a way of actually surveying through listening rather than through seeing. So that would be another method of going about it. Great. Well, it sounds like you're pioneering a lot of new methods, a lot of new techniques. If they work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big if. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Thank you. Um, Tim, coming to you. I mean, Emma, you just spoke quite a lot about soundscapes there, and that's something we spoke um, to Steve about a little bit. I realise we haven't actually explained what they are, so I think Tim may be a good person to actually just paint a picture there for anyone who maybe isn't quite sure what a what a soundscape is and how they relate to what you're doing. Yeah, so as Emma alluded to, um, coral reefs are actually very noisy places. Um, a lot of people think of the underwater world as silent, um, but I suspect that is because our ears don't work very well underwater. You know, when we go for a swim, we're on the surface and either there's some air stuck in your ear or there's waves lapping at the side of your head and you don't hear much because you don't expect to hear much and you're not trying to hear much. But if you dive underwater on a reef, and hold your breath and clear your ears and just for a minute listen. There's this amazing cacophony of sound hits you from all sorts of different animals. So, you know, there's shrimp that are clicking their claws. They create this background static sound and sea urchins are scraping the rock and turtles and parrotfish are crunching through. Um, sediment as they graze, damselfish are whooping and grunting. There's clicks and pings and choruses of all sorts of animals that you don't even know what, what's making the noise. Um, it's this really busy sort of soundscape you know there's so many different voices going on um, and what we are working on is increasing our understanding of those voices underwater um, to try and understand how we can eavesdrop on the ecosystem and survey and learn about the reef by just listening to the sounds that we hear. So am I right in thinking you've been looking a lot at say um, comparisons between or how these soundscapes might change over over time as well? Yeah so one of the things we can study uh, through the use of these acoustic comparisons is how reefs change over time, um, in particular when they go through either degradation or restoration events. The Great Barrier Reef is a good example of this work. So our research group has worked there for decades, and it always used to be this beautiful, pristine reef full of lots of different animals, all making their own sounds, and this sort of underwater symphony, all of these noises all going on at once. And then in the last five years... Um, Really heartbreakingly, it's been completely decimated by climate change. The area that we work has been subject to two of the strongest cyclones in recorded history that came straight past, um, straight over the reef, straight past the island that we work on. Uh, and then climate change-induced coral bleaching has struck in a big way. In the last two years, severe bleaching events have occurred at our study site. Um, that's killed 60 to 80 percent of all of the corals with big knock-on effects through the rest of the ecosystem too. So we recently did a study where we took 
old recordings that we had um, from when we'd previously worked on these healthy reefs and then we went back to the same place at the same time of year using the same equipment and we listened again to the same reefs after they'd been through this damage and what we what we heard broke our hearts it was such a distinct change in what we could hear from that ecosystem the the previously full chaotic noisy world of the healthy reef had been had been silenced really and that you can now hear this this emptiness not only is the volume dramatically decreased it's down to a quarter of its previous level but also the complexity, the richness, the number of different acoustic events you can hear going on has also dropped. Okay, wow. So do you think there's chance for recovery there? Or have you thought about sort of the approaches maybe that you're going to be taking to, I wouldn't say fix, but address that issue? Yeah, it's, it, it's certainly a sobering thing to listen to when you, when you, hear, the, when you hear an ecosystem silenced like that. It, it's sad in and of itself because, you know, that aspect of the sound has been lost. But it's also quite functionally important for the ecosystem because a lot of marine animals um, have a... When they're very young, they have a planktonic stage. That means that they don't live on the reef as very young animals. As larvae, they get blown out into the open ocean. and They float around in the plankton um, for a while while they grow up. And then when they become adults, they come back to reefs. So fish do this, baby fish live out in the open sea and then they come back to reefs as adults. Um, invertebrates do this as well. Even turtles do this. You know, lots of different animals go out into the open ocean as young animals and come back to reefs as adults. Um, there's various different ways they find their way back home uh, in that process, but one of the important ones is that they listen and they hear their way home because you can hear sound from a long way away they can cue into reef sounds, work out where reefs are, but also, as well as just a navigation, where is the reef? They can be making uh, judgment calls on whether the reef sounds healthy, whether it sounds like a good place to go, and whether or not to swim towards that reef and settle. So if reefs are quieter, and if they sound less attractive, which we know they do, then there is a worry that these young fish that would be coming to repopulate the reef will no longer come there anymore because either they can't hear it or they can hear that it's degraded and they don't want to come back. So then the reef gets trapped in this downward spiral of degradation where the more degraded it becomes, the quieter it gets, and the quieter it gets, the fewer animals come back to it, and when fewer animals come back to it, it degrades further because it's got fewer animals on it. And so we're really worried about this acoustic, um, acoustic vicious cycle almost that may be developing. That's why we're now really interested in trying to apply these findings into how we understand those changes and then what we do with them. So in the same way that Lauren's applying what she understands about the RAS to try and manage the fishery, and Emma's applying what she understands about these impacts of noise pollution and how she tries to then manage that issue, we're trying to understand more about these acoustic changes and trying to understand can we measure them in a better way? Can we use them as a sort of early warning call you know this reef's in trouble it's got quiet we need to look after it more we need to find ways of getting more fish there and even on a small scale we wonder whether it would be possible to use loudspeakers to make reefs louder to stop this happening you know it's yeah. it's going to be a limited and small scale solution of course it is we can't put loudspeakers on every reef in the world but if we can even help restoration efforts um on a sort of local um coral restoration scheme scale uh, we think that might be useful in some contexts. Sounds really interesting. So you could potentially could you use this for, I, I don't know how long that process would take to get 
fish coming back if it was successful? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's an open question. Yeah. Uh, it's a question I'm doing research on at the moment. Um, the short answer is we don't know how viable it'll be. That's the fun. Um, yeah. that's, that's why we're doing the experiments. That's what we're trying to work out. Um, I suspect it will be quite context dependent. I suspect in some situations, in some places, it might well work well. We don't know. Uh, in other situations, there may be things that prevent it working. For instance, if it's an area with a lot of noise pollution in, then there's not a lot of point putting loudspeakers down if there's ships tanking up and down just next to your loudspeakers because they won't be heard. Uh, the, the, another big factor is that it needs there to be fish available to hear the sounds. You know, If there's no fish in the sea, you can play as much noise as you want. You're not going to get any fish on your reefs. Um, so th th these are ideas that we're all, that we're we're not only mulling over but actively going and doing field experiments and testing in the field. It's it's really exciting to be part of that process. Um, I'm really exciting to see what will come out of it. Brilliant. Well, looking forward to hearing what happens with that. Yeah, we're, we're looking keep, forward to seeing what happens too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep you posted. So. That's a really great overview of what you all do. So you all work in the same research group with Steve Simpson, who we had on previously. How do you tie it all together with each other here? I think we are all, you're right, we're all on very different topics. And as well as being on different topics, we work in very different places. So a lot of Lauren's work is done quite locally around the Devon and Dorset and Cornwall coasts. Um, Emma's been off working in French Polynesia in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, I work mainly in Australia. And that's, you know, so at first glance, I think a lot of people think we're quite all over the place. <laughs> None of us quite know what we're doing and we're all <laughs> in different places chasing different things. But we're all quite excited uh, by each other's work in that we all have very applied solutions to some of the big problems that the world's oceans face today. And I mean, you guys can chip in on this as well, but I'm, I'm certainly, I look around our group and I'm very inspired by trying to address problems, but not just in a way that describes problems. I think there's... There's an awful lot of marine science today that sort of, you know, finds a problem in the ocean, which, let's face it, isn't hard to do, and then just sort of browbeats everybody for the fact that the oceans are going down the Leaves it there the and doesn't hole. try and find a solution to exactly, it. Exactly, and yeah. just leaves you feeling depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Lauren's stuff then, you know, she addresses this fishery, but then she works with um, fishermen and fisherwomen around the country. She works with the industry and she tries to find proactive solutions and ways in which it can be managed, managed sustainably. And the same with Emma can talk about the technology that they're looking into to try and reduce the impact of noise pollution. We're trying to use this acoustic change on coral reefs to then find new ways of measuring and mitigating damage on coral reefs. I think like yeah just as Tim said our research group and you know this has also been developed thanks to supervision from Steve as well um, we really try to maintain like an optimistic ethic within our group um, and not only does that just stop you from feeling so miserable every single day when you're going in you're working on oh god all this data and so you know doesn't leave you so depressed but but also I think in order to create a more whole rounded study if you're looking at a system and it's going through degradation or if it's going through uh, pollution, whether that's noise pollution or plastic pollution, anything like that, I think in order to complete that study, you've really got to look at how you can change or help uh, management, you can uh, alter policies. The information that we're providing through our research can hopefully then um, we can work with policy and management in order to either mitigate these issues or work with the biology, you know, as, as Tim would be doing. You're actually working with the ecosystem. You're 
increasing that level of um, healthy soundscape to be broadcasted out from a not so healthy reef. So you're working with biology rather than just, you know, for me, motorboat noise it's kind of people ask me how are you actually going to you can't just stop people from driving around you can't just tell everyone to ditch your motors and get a sail but you know what I always say is a quieter boat is a slower boat you know we don't need to be absolutely hooning it around a reef everyone's on holiday anyway nobody's in a particular (laughs) rush to get anywhere and that's you know that there's areas that are tourism obviously you've got things like fishing as well so it can be restricted um, to a certain number of vessels, if they need to get somewhere quick, they can. But you know, we don't. We can apply it. And also, the other thing with motorboat noise, for me, um, with this study, if you cut off plastic pollution, there's still a residue in the water that we have to sort out, and it's still in the food chain. It's still in the ecosystem. If you stop noise, it's silent. There's no residue at all. So. Even if you don't stop it, but you're quiet in it, in order to manage it, it's really, really effective. Um, we can literally turn it off. So I think you know it's really exciting that, that this is the case. And yeah, there's been some fantastic developments in terms of engines, even just going from a two-stroke engine to a four-stroke engine. Uh, research before mine in in our research group has found that you know the use of four-stroke motorboats actually reduces that negative impact on fish physiology and also fish behaviour as well. So, um, and that's because it takes a far less of the frequency band that you have that the uh, motorboat noise puts out on the reef. So you've got a far smaller uh, frequency band at which it takes up. So that means that these fish can still uh, communicate and behave within you know, the frequency band that's not being taken up. Not only that, but there's actually uh, an increase in the amount of electronic engines that are being used. And those are incredibly quiet compared to those, um, the normal engines that we have, the fuel engines. And even, I think it's the HMS Attenborough, or what's going to be called Boating McBoatface once, they've got some really brilliant engines now where they've really, really thought about it. They don't want to be polluting the ocean because they are actually research vessels themselves. They want to be trying, you know, they're doing the research. They also want to be helping and conserving these ecosystems. So they've really thought well about how to alter their engineering of their engines um, to be as quiet as possible. So, you know, people haven't thought about it before, so that's why now now we know that there's growing issues. We can actually do something really cool and really um, ingenuitive about it. I guess we also kind of come together in the dissemination of the research that we do as well. So communicating our research to all of the user groups and um, stakeholders that are involved in trying to sort of manage these these potential impacts yeah so for me that might be that might involve talking to the fishermen talking to the authorities um talking to the salmon producers and trying to bring all of those different people together um to show them how we can try and manage a fishery more sustainably in tim and emma's case or in emma's case it might be um going to boat users and trying to talk to them about different engine types and how they can maybe, like you say, um, drive a bit slower, which might kind of reduce the, the noise on the reefs. And in Tim's case, I guess it could be kind of going towards uh, reef conservationists and promoting the use of potential regeneration programs. And, yeah. Um, yeah, trying to 
increase the use of new technology and new ways of monitoring mm. reefs. Yeah, it. so the, the dissemination of all of our research, like we kind of come together in that sense, kind of guiding each other on how to maybe, how the best approach, what the best approach is to trying to get our research out there and make a difference. Excellent. I mean, it, it does seem that these days there's more and more of a push for applied science and, like you're saying, finding a, finding a problem but then acting on it, mm. which is great because it seems to, like you say, be a common theme across the group. So you're all marine biologists, which to a lot of, a lot of young people especially, that's kind of the dream is marine biology. What is... Mm. That was a questionable look you gave me. Yeah. Say, but, uh, <laughs> but I know a lot... I've Adjust your lot, dreams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, why, why did you get into marine biology and how did you do it as well? So I guess for me, um, my major inspiration was when I started diving. Um, just being kind of immersed in a coral reef ecosystem and hearing all those noises and seeing all those things kind of just, yeah, in, inspired me to, to do marine biology. So that's what I did. Um, I went to university. Before, before I found that, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, didn't know... Um, that you could even do marine biology. I was initially thinking that oh, I'd, I'd be a good accountant or, or something like that, but um, very glad I didn't do that. Um, nothing again against accountants, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, the field work's not as good with accountants. Yeah, the field work's not as good. <laughs> um, but yeah, kind of did a bit of research into to what I could do. I knew I wanted to do something that I enjoyed, and marine biology was was a really good option for me so I did my undergraduate degree I did my master's degree in two completely different things um, I started my undergraduate or did my research project for my undergraduate degree on a tropical reef in Honduras spent six weeks diving every every day twice a day doing similar surveys to what Emma and Tim do in Lizard Island and French Polynesia kind of looking at the community structure of the reef and seeing how an invasive fish could impact uh, the community structure and so absolutely loved that but then I knew I wanted to kind of test whether I, I enjoyed kind of tropical stuff more or, or, or more temperate stuff so a bit closer to home um, so for my masters I looked at marine protected areas around the UK and kind of assessed their functional recovery over time and to see whether they, they were comparable so I, I had quite a nice contrast there two completely different areas of marine biology but both very applicable um, and yeah I found that I really really enjoyed the applied side of marine biology I didn't really mind where I was obviously it's lovely to be on tropical reefs diving every day but I also got a really really kind of keen interest in fisheries management and so I tried to find a PhD that would kind of incorporate the applied side of it whilst also being able to go out and do field work and yeah so that's that's how I got to where I am. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Emma, what okay. about you? So um, I grew up pretty much um, right at the end of the land uh, in Cornwall, uh, Land's End, and so I was kind of always been surrounded by like 20, 280 degrees of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so my whole childhood was rock pooling, and I very rarely did anything else. Um, you know, I kind of graduated on to a bit of surfing, but I was just always obsessed with being in the water and 
in a way, I still feel like I haven't really graduated from rock pooling. I just do it in a lot more places around the world. So I just, yeah, I feel really lucky in that I can, I still have those interests that, you know, my curious little three-year-old mind had, but I've just been able to adapt them into a career now. So a lot of people told me that marine biology is extremely competitive. You know, I went to a state school. I wasn't a particularly high-up student or anything like that. So, you know, good luck. But even though it's your dream, just think of something else as well. So I guess for a while I wanted to be a filmmaker was up there, but again, pretty big dream. Um, but I really, really enjoyed, um, as, as a lot of people do, David Attenborough, I know you ask this to any marine biologist, like, what got you into marine biology? Watching David Attenborough documentaries. Um, but, you know, I... So from watching a lot of David Attenborough, I thought, you know, biology is actually really interesting. It's not all, you know, DNA or pathogens, which is also really interesting. It's just not my interests. Um, so I, yeah, took up biology and chemistry and then I ended up doing a biology degree, which I would not have guessed I was going to do. And more and more I got to realise that actually marine biology isn't completely out of my league and that, you know, if I work hard enough, I can do it. So, yeah, and then I ended up doing a master's. I just basically have spent a long time at university, still haven't left, but it's really opened up some fantastic opportunities and has got my curious little rock-pooling mind still going. Excellent. And Tim, what about you? I, I guess I came to marine biology a bit late in the day. Um, I was doing a natural sciences degree and doing all these modules on cell biology and um, chemistry and biochemistry and was convinced I was going to go and be a proper scientist and work in a lab and wear a white coat and use pipettes and cure cancer and all that sort of thing. Um, but then I, I discovered it sort of, I was quite bored by it and I was quite bad at it. <laughs> and so during one summer holiday, I thought I'd go and try and try and try something else. So um, my parents live in East Africa. So I went and worked for a, an NGO as sort of a charity organization on the Kenyan coast. Um, and I ran snorkel safaris for little kids and we did beach cleans and we, you know, went and did little educational trips out onto a coral reef and showed them the animals and showed them the stingrays and the sharks and things. And swimming around there and acting as a sort of tour guide uh, in that environment made me really inspired both by um, seeing people's reactions to it, both by seeing how captivated and how amazed people were at being in and snorkeling around the underwater world and having their mind blown by it for the first time. And also being increasingly aware that that was framed against this tragic backdrop of so many threats um, and such an uncertain future for that world really inspired me to change tack and to go into that. Since then I've done a master's and now two thirds of a PhD and my family keep asking me when I'm going to get a real job, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's for the future. <laughs> Postdoc next, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Never, <laughs> never leave the, uh, the academic world. Um, brilliant. Well, I think before we just wrap this up once and for all, thank you all very much for the time today. You've sort of spoken to me as well about how, you know, you and actually Steve's group as a whole has quite a positive outlook on a lot of things. Could you all maybe just give me like sort of one positive thing you think people should go away and maybe read about or maybe people think something that people aren't aware of? I don't think people shout about success enough. I think that it's very true that the world's oceans are heavily threatened. It's very true that 
um, climate change and plastic pollution and noise pollution and all of these big threats are they are big and they're increasing and they have severe impacts and we can see those impacts playing out not just in the future but right now but it's also true that there are equally big reasons for hope um, and some of those are reasons that we understand and we can measure uh, people's awareness of plastic uh, litter in the ocean is increasing and I think we will see that going down as well and then there are other reasons for hope that we don't understand there are coral reefs around the world that are in great shape and nobody's quite sure why we're not sure why they haven't been whacked by bleaching yet or why they haven't been destroyed by a cyclone or why they haven't been completely overfished or drowned in plastic but they haven't and they're still there and there are still moments in any ecosystem not just coral reefs you can go swimming off the coast of england off the coast of america off the coast of a tropical island and be amazed by what you see underwater um, i think we too often are focused on the sad decay of some of our ocean systems and not focused enough on what is still worth celebrating and protecting. Mm. And I think that um, if, if we increase the amount of awareness of what we are getting right and what is actually working, then it's going to create such a bigger incentive to keep on at it. I think enough people, a lot of people think, oh, we're doing all this stuff and I just think, that I don't think I'm going to bother anymore because I don't think it's getting anywhere. What can I do? You know, it's so easy to get that defeatist outlook. But if, yeah, as Tim said, if we shout a bit more about our success, then people might see that, you know, that a big momentum might carry out throughout um, different research groups, but also in public interest as well. And we might find, you know, we might realise that actually the effort that we are putting in is doing something. It's making a change and it's making a positive, like kind of symbiotic change um, with our relationship with these natural ecosystems, these vulnerable ecosystems. Well, guys, that's great. Thank you very much for summing up so nicely at, uh, at the end there. Thank you all for your time for today. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get you on again in the future. It sounds like you've all got like, really exciting projects going on, so it'll be really cool to see how they all develop. But um, thanks very much. Thanks oh, for having thank us. You. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much to Lauren, Emma and Tim for joining us to chat about their fascinating research. I found it really enjoyable to get to listen to all three of them in a chat together. This interview was actually recorded quite a long time ago, so if there have been any major updates to their work, we'll put some more info and useful links in the show notes for you. As always, hope you'll tune in again next time, but until then, take care and big thanks for listening.